In Japan, the hand can be used like a knife. But this method doesn't work with a tomato. That's why we use the Ginsu. It's a knife that no kitchen should be without. The Ginsu can cut a slice of bread so thin you can almost see through it. It cuts meat better than an electric knife and goes through frozen food as though it were melted butter. The Ginsu is so sharp it can cut through a tin can and still slice a tomato like this. It can chop wood and still remain razor sharp. What's more, it's a knife that will last forever. How much would you pay for a knife like this? Before you answer, listen. It even comes with a matching fork to make carving a pleasure. Wait, there's much, much more. We also want you to have this six-in-one kitchen tool. It peels and slivers carrots. Can you say no to yes? Yes, you say? Aw, oh, damn it, see, you just did it again. You said yes again, and you probably didn't mean it. And chances are, when you get to work today, you'll do it again. You'll say yes, commit to something you don't want to do. See, as marketers today, we live in a world of yes. We say yes when our boss asks, can we handle one more project? When our colleague needs another person on their center of excellence team. When your office mate asks, can you just reformat this PowerPoint because, you know, you're so good at it. When the agency says, which one do you like? Do you like this one? When we're asked if we can come in early, stay late, fly the red eye so that you can tear down the booth later. When our boss asks, can we put together that ROI study on the thing that's never been studied before? Or can you just help out Brad? You know Brad, the guy who's been hired to be your boss, the one you're going to now train to be your boss? Yes. Even when we don't say yes, we say yes. We say yes with our silence when the beaning holder says, right, is everybody okay with this action plan? We say yes by just acting on that email that lands in our inbox assigning us a task. You know, it's just easier to do it ourselves than to explain why no. We even say yes with no when the CEO asks if anybody has any problems with why the logo should be chartreuse green and the mission statement contains the word synergy and paradigm 14 times. So much yes. But can we say no to yes? Now, there are a number of reasons we say it, of course. There is the desire to please, the fear of hurting their feelings, the guilt, the recognition of authority, the hope for reciprocity. You know, they'll owe me one. There's duty. I should do it. I owe it. And then there's the need or hope for recognition or power. That's the if I do this, they'll have to recognize how valuable I am. Here's the key. In every single one of those that I just listed, None of them have anything to do with how you feel about saying yes. The desire to please, you want to know how they're going to feel when you complete the task. Fear of hurting their feelings, well, that one's obvious. Recognition of authority, that's the fear of how they will react. They'll owe you one, well, you're hoping they remember. I should do it because, well, you feel they don't think you're adequate. The hope for recognition, and yeah, you're right back to hoping they do recognize you. If you're feeling like you're that person in your office, in your career, here's one idea. Try don't instead of can't. Researchers have found that don't has an effect on how well you can stick to know and what others hear. I don't skip my workout instead of I can't skip my workout. Don't is a more powerful motivator. And when responding to others, can't infers that you might want to do it but cannot at this time. In other words, if you negotiate with me, I might be turned. Don't, on the other hand, well, it comes across as a rule you've set for yourself for some time. It's about setting rules for you. You and your value is what counts. Can you handle one more project? I don't want to sacrifice the quality of my other projects or my focus. Can you just reformat that PowerPoint? I don't have the time to give it the attention it deserves. Now, it's a balancing act for sure. Don't get yourself fired by saying no to yes and telling the boss that chartreuse green won't work. But the key is taking you into consideration. How will you feel about saying yes? And that's the theme of our show today. Don't just say yes. Say no in order to say yes. As the wise Steve Jobs once said, focus isn't saying yes to the good ideas. It's saying no to the hundreds of good ideas that you can focus on the best ones. I'm as proud of the things I've said no to as those that I've said yes to. 
And now's the time for me to say don't change that dial. Don't turn us off because we're saying yes to another hour of chit-chat, this old marketing, and a few cool ideas. We'll be choosy, of course. You ready to take on one more task and listen? Then say yes and let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 188 of PR's This Old Marketing. Recording a little early this week for the week of June 18th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the most knowiest yes-man in content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizio. How are you, my friend? Knowiest is not a word. Yeah, well, it is now. It's... We, we we introduced nowist, and now I'm introducing knowiest. Like, you you say no by saying yes, That's, which is the theme of the show, of course. Um, but yes, you, you say yes by saying no, and you say no by saying yes. Mind blown, man! I have yeah, no idea where to take oh, wait that. To, oh, but if I listen the to the intro. if I yeah. listen to the introduction, I'm going to understand. I, I hope so. I, I hope so. <laughs> I make no guarantees in any of that because the whole uh, nowist thing. I mean, there's a whole movement going around. There seems to be started. Twitter. Seems to be yeah. Seems to be a little bit of a Twitter buzz around. There's the going to be. I want to get a PhD in nowism. I mean, I <laughs> I really do. Now, knowiest. <laughs> Not quite sure. It just Here's doesn't the thing. have the same if ring. You, how long should it take to get a PhD in nowism? And doesn't that sort of kind of, you know, basically... Well, here's it, the good it, news. It ruins the whole thing, right? Because if it takes any amount of time, it's now the that's past. Right. It's instantaneous. Yeah, that's you just right. Have, you oh, basically pay $50,000 and you get a PhD in nowism. There it is. And Congratulations. You are now... Send- a doctor. Exactly, exactly. And you can send your checks to Robert Rose at 23679. <laughs> that would be the greatest Road. training program ever. I mean, we should do that. Uh, a doctorate PhD. in Nowism, yeah. and it's, it's like, That's hey, right. just, here's just cash, just just uh, sign, send the check or wire the funds. We take cryptocurrency. That's right, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is accepted. I'm so like I've been trying to follow this cryptocurrency thing. I'm I really am trying to get my arms around it. It's very challenging. Have for you me. invested or bought any Bitcoin? No, I haven't done anything. You, I just. Yeah. No, I'm trying to just understand what cryptocurrency is in that it's it's basically the transaction between two entities without an intermediary and it's a computer program that is the intermediary generally, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. I, I think I think you've explained it very well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you Did I get that? Because that's Yeah, I think so. I mean, okay. that's as far as I understand it and my I have a very remedial understanding of of Bitcoin and blockchain and all that stuff. But what I don't understand is how you can mine cryptocurrency you can actually so you can set up a computer with all this gpu processing power and you can start to mine these things so that people can then use you're then you're part of this cryptocurrency network and people can can then tap into that and you get paid sort of a commission that's right it's just it's just mind-blowing that's a billion dollar industry that just just happened i mean in the last decade but it just you know happened for me because i just found out about it I mean, Bitcoin, yeah, no, I knew about. I'm really but the interested in it. Thing is new. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I keep cutting. No, no. I was just gonna say I'm 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 really interested in it, and I hope uh, I hope to spend a little more time with it in the coming months and and, and years. But you know, I'm kind of sad that I didn't. You know, very early on, like I mean, I want to say six or seven years ago, I had the opportunity. I I I, I got into it for like three weeks. Uh, you know, this is going back to I don't know 2000 eight or 2009 or something like that. And I got into it and I started looking into it. I actually was thinking about buying a server and, and doing the mining thing and, and figuring it all out and how to buy Bitcoin. And I should have, because I, you know, I wouldn't be here right now. Let's put it that way. If well, I let's bought. just, let's just think about this. Let's just think about this for a second. You decided to join the movement of content marketing. That's right. Instead of, instead Bitcoin. of becoming a multi-billionaire. Congratulations. Right. Yeah, thank you. You yeah, really you made the right choice. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yep, but, you but we wouldn't have and this 
horrible yeah. podcast to listen yeah. to. Instead, so. I helped you become a billionaire, right? That's that's what I did. <laughs> you made the right choice, my friend. You're so smart. I love you. Yeah. Yes, Anyways, I love you too. Uh, should should we uh, should we start we the should, show or we should people move are on like to the what news. what is he talking about? Why does he bring yeah. up cryptocurrency? It's just. <laughs> by the way, my kids are really getting in to computers and like building computers, and so I'm really trying to understand the difference between what Nvidia does and AMD and Intel and processing power, and that's how it all came up. So it's I all because of the kids. Oh, there. Well, there you go. That's, Your kids are teaching you something every day. I, that yeah, is for sure. Actually, uh, the my my rave today is going to come from my my son. So, oh, very yeah. nice. So that's why because I can't think. I don't think of anything original. You do all the this all marketings, and my kids do all my rants and raves. And it that's just, right. It well, works that way. That's why you're a successful man is because you have other people to do all your work for you. But when I steal, I at least tell people I'm stealing. (laughs) Like, I've totally stolen all your ideas. You're you're totally authentic about your... uh, Yeah, that's what I tell people. It's like, because we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Almost all of your really amazing quotes are attributed to me. I know. And I go out there and I say, no, 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 I didn't say that. Robert Rose said that. But they don't care. But they don't care. They don't care. Of course, you know, you, you realize, of course, that... Your ridiculous quotes are now being attributed to me, such as Disney buying Apple or Apple buying Disney. There's nothing than. makes me happier than that. <laughs> I was I really wanted that to happen, and I'm like, how do I make how do I get that to happen so that people attribute Robert? I'm now to having to defend that. your position. Right, this <laughs> it is notion, so great. Is, <laughs> that is th- this is the reason why the internet was created, just for this uh, kind of thing. For fake news. For that's fake that's news. great. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the role we're living in. So just you know, get on board. <laughs> All right, uh, our 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 upfront sponsor today, our good. Folks oh, that's at, right. We yeah. have that wonderful sponsor that's to right. talk about. Our wonderful friends, the at new Video kid Blocks. on the block. Yeah, our one new kid. I should. We should. We should open. Can you open uh, one of the episodes with some new kids on the block? Can you? I you probably can't. No, I would be happy to do that, except that the the copyright holders might be a little upset with that. Yeah, like even if you use like three seconds of it. No, Did, I don't think we get. Caught I thought for it was that, like less but, than but, like yeah. five seconds. It's okay. That's right. That's something like that. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I used. Look, I use that as you've heard in the intros. I've used movie scenes and stuff like that, and nobody's yelled at us yet. And so, you know, it, it's. it's I, real, I, I you like set it, a really you know. good example for our listeners. And there it nobody's is. complained yet. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pretty soon we'll all get taken down. <laughs> feds will come in. <laughs> I consider myself, you know, sampling like a good rap artist does or a DJ does. Well, the good news is I changed the copyright to you. Okay. Instead of me. So if the feds do come, they're not coming to All the liability relies on me. They're coming coming to, yeah, James Comey's coming your way. Well, he was. There we go. Now it's There we go. Lordy, 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 lordy. Uh, So our (laughs) our front sponsor today is our good friends at Videoblocks. If you're not familiar with Videoblocks, they're an affordable subscription-based stock media service that gives you unlimited access to premium stock footage. They have one of the fastest growing stock video libraries with over 3 million videos, after effect templates, and motion backgrounds. And don't forget, downloads are yours forever, even after your trial ends and are 100% royalty free. And this month, Videoblocks is launching its latest collection, Creator to Creator, with more than 1,000 artistic and creative lifestyle clips as part of their new collection. Um, now, also, you may not, well, if you listen to this, you know, but Videoblocks also has a sister site called Audioblocks, and they have a 100,000-plus library of music tracks, sound effects, and loops to complement your videos. Now, here's the special for PNR subscribers. You can get Videoblocks 241 deal. So when you sign up to Videoblocks for $100 off their regular rate at $149, you get Audioblocks for free. So you... This is special just for PNR PNR listeners. So, Video Blocks is normally two forty nine. You get it for one forty nine. If you go to the link, I'm going to give you in a second. You also get Audio Blocks for free. So, go to cmi.media slash pnr one eighty eight b. That's cmi.media slash pnr one eighty eight b to get that two for one offer on unlimited downloads of both video and audio clips from Video Blocks and. Audio blocks and thanks to uh, the folks at Video Blocks for sponsoring again this week. Absolutely. We love you. Absolutely, it's awesome. So thank you for that. There, they should have lots of T-shirts and stuff with like block puns. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that conversation has happened in their conference room before. I don't know, but I mean, we have a we have about a hundred really bad ideas for them. 
that that's right. Anytime I you're, I, I got tons of bad puns. For well, that. I'll send them a note, including blockchain. By the way, they, oh, they I, could, you know, yeah. So anyway, we could get we could get on the whole cryptocurrency thing. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be big. This is going to be the next movement. It's going to be first. You got to go with nowism. That yeah. and then we're going to go with the whole block thing, like it's a huge. Minecraft Minecraft for adults thing. It's huge. It'll be big in China. <laughs> All right. Moving along here. Do we have any, speaking uh, of currency, we have anything yes, to talk about? Speaking yeah. of currency, we have a great story to open up our show here. Um, this one's going to come courtesy of thehustle.co. Um, and the headline here, it's, it's a bit of a case study. How Nerd Wallet went to a $520 million company using content. Big hat tip here to, by the way, to at Jim McLeod, who's a friend and family of the show on Twitter hashtag. So thank you. Thank you, Jim, for this story. The story opens up by saying credit cards, debt, mortgage, mutual fund. If you're already bored and or overwhelmed after reading that first line, keep reading because that's exactly how you can understand the opportunity NerdWallet saw in 2009 and how you can apply the same strategies to your business. Starting as a simple Excel spreadsheet comparing different credit cards, NerdWallet evolved into a full-scale personal finance authority website with over 7 million monthly web visitors. Chances are if you look up anything personal finance related such as best credit cards in Google, you're end up going to find up something on Nerd Wallet, and the, it goes on to describe how they really optimized search and and really focused on content and delivering valuable content as a means of growing their whole software business. I just thought this was a great story. What do you think? Well, I mean, if, uh, a little side note: don't, don't yeah. you when you ever see an email or a, a URL that's .co? I always is it, I always say is it .co or did somebody forget the M? I just, yeah. Yes, and I know .co is like out there now, and GoDaddy's been preaching it forever, but. I just, it's just. It's, I'm old it's school, you know. It's so funny. Whenever, I, yes, whenever I register a domain these days, I'm still. If I can't get the .com, I'm going with the .net, right? I mean, and maybe that just makes somebody said to me that the .net is the dad genes of internet domains. So like, <laughs> maybe that's appropriate for me. I don't know, but yeah, I'm I still I mean, a I .net you can guy. Get, yeah, because you can get .books and you can get .dot everything .ai .dot .dot yeah, yeah, it's like. Get me the dot out of here. Anyways, <laughs> the, I, by the way, anyone who is a content creator or a journalist should read this article. Absolutely. It's a wonderful Q&A uh, with, uh, with the two content leaders at NerdWallet. And some of the wonderful things that I picked up is they have, they have multiple um, content editors, let's say, and they're all... I guess they were talking about KPIs for a while and that every one of them has different KPIs and you can't have a universal KPI so it's negative toward the business. And that whole detail that they went through is fantastic. So I love that. I love the 10% rule, uh, which of course, like companies like Google will do, or they'll give you a percentage of your free time to, to work on something aspirational. So every one of their content writers get that. And the way that, um, I can't think of where it's Maggie. What's her name? Lung. Uh, is it Lung, Lung or yeah. Ling? I can't remember. It's, it's, so L U L E U N G. So Maggie talks about um, how they didn't start with a quality content. So when they got there, they're like, okay, well, they had to use the resources they had to to create the best possible content. But now it, you, you you sort of can't sacrifice it. It always has to be A-plus content. And what I thought I wanted to get your take, Robert, is she's basically said that some sites can get away with C-plus content. And she said, she said, well, NerdWallet can't. It always has to be the best content, no matter what, best in industry. I thought that's the only thing I disagreed with, where I think that in the past, any a site could get away with C-plus content, but I don't think you can anymore. Would you agree with that, or can you still be certain companies and get away with just lackluster content, and that's just fine? Well, I think you can get away with some. Um, and so, and look, C plus content is relative to the site that it's on, right? I mean, you know, we've we we have talked about you and I have talked about how uh, a site like Harvard Business Review, for example, which used to be like you know the gold standard for some of the content, has really come down. Not you know of of not of late I would say but you know has but it's still good content it's just maybe not up to the standard that they had so A plus versus B plus C you know I, I think it's a relative statement um, and so but I do think that you can 
once you what you said this just last show you talked about how when you build a a an audience and you you build some goodwill there Yes. And so yep. I think over time you build enough goodwill where not everything has to be, you know, guns ablaze and A plus all the time. You can get away. Now, if you do C plus content consistently over time and, you know, and you start to degrade the quality of the audience over time, well, then, you know, that's that's your bad. But I, I, I think I agree with her in principle. The thing that I really did agree with related to what you just said was where she said, you know, there's a difference between compromising your brand and making a conscious choice that you need to start somewhere and then get better and better. And as she said, not everybody's going to be able to start at A-level content. Yeah. She said, I didn't start with A-level content at NerdWallet. There was no way I could have possibly done that. We didn't hire 100 people overnight. We had to scale it gradually. And so, as she said, keep looking for the feedback loop of where they're adding value to your business. If they're not, figure out what you need to do something else. And if they're adding value increase that slowly and make sure you're making the right hires and changes. So that to me was the most important thing there, which was we're not going to be perfect and great at it out of the gate. You know, we're not going to be at scale of where we want to be out of the gate, build it over time slowly and focus as much as you can on getting better over time. Well, I think the one thing that I think is instrumental that we talk about a lot that most companies don't do is this idea of setting a mission. So what she talked about was, when you hire somebody on, clearly show them what the destination is. What is our overall goal? Is our goal to be the leading expert in what? And be very specific about what that is, and then let those people figure out how to get there. Because you're hiring That's on right. experts, and let them figure that. Don't tell them exactly how to do that. Because wh what happens is, at least in my experience, and I don't know if you've seen this, but if you have a short-term goal, or if you don't set the clear mission or vision for somebody, they set their goals into um, van more vanity metrics, right? Oh, tweets or tweets and shares and traffic and those types of things instead of the larger what can we become. And those are longer term goals. And so it, setting a mission automatically sets you out for this longer term approach where you can add assets over time and you really can start to nurture an audience and build an audience instead of, oh, we need to see something in three to six months. That's right. And, 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 and as she says, the key thing to understand is that your goal, if you figure out your strategy and your goal, then staff up for that, right? And that the only way you can do that and staff up, because staffing up, of course, takes time as well, is to have a long-term goal, is to have a common long-term goal. The other thing that I think she said that supports just exactly what you just said, which is, uh, she, she says, content is our product. And that, to me, it was like, oh, my gosh, that just made this whole article for me. It's like if she says content is our product, it's our blood, and we want to make sure that if we're going to have that kind of reliance on content, we treat the people we hire that create that content as huge investments, not as some sort of throwaway interchangeable cog. Boy, is that such an important piece these days. That's well, of course, we talk about this in, in Killing Marketing, our book coming out, but I think that's what an innovative marketing department will say in the next five yep. years. Yep. That's because, I, I think because that's exactly what, right. that's where we see marketing. Well, that's where we see marketing evolving. Not all, not all companies, but I think innovative ones that are starting to diversify their portfolio. That's how they start to look at their marketing as, as building audiences. The last thing that I would probably say to this too is she talked about, how every time they hire three writers, they hire an editor and how important yeah, the editing process yeah. is and how critical that is. And you and I have talked about that at length. I remember, you know, even in the when we do the Masterclass Roadshow at the end of the year, we have people coming up to us and say, hey, uh, I really I need to hire this. I need to hire a content creator. And then after you and I talk to that person, we realize that. You don't really need a content creator. You need a really good editor <laughs> yeah, to take exactly all this right. content you have and employee content and all this insight in your organization and make it digestible for your audience. So. Yeah, and by the way, it levels everybody up. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, just as an example, I, I, am, I am made at least two times better in my communication because I have editors who work on my stuff, right? I mean, I might have a reasonably interesting idea, but because I work with editors at the wonderful people at, at CMI, quite frankly, uh, Marsha, Michelle, Lisa, all the people who sort of edit my stuff, they make me so much better than, than I would normally be. The one little, um, 
this is something, I mean, I know that we've been doing this, but I never did it for myself, but there's a, uh, there is a session of content marketing world that I'm running, which is basically called getting the, how do you get the most out of content marketing world? And I didn't have the, she, so Claire McDermott, who is our editor of chief content officer magazine, she wanted to interview me for what I was going to talk about in that session. And I told her, she calls me up and she's interviewing me and she says, so what's, I said, I had to be honest with her. I said, Claire, I haven't, I don't have the whole thing figured out yet. And what I did was she asked me some amazing questions and I told her, I said, oh, I'm going to be going to talk about this. And oh, of course, we're going to talk about this. And this is what you need to do on social media ahead of time. And this is what you need to do at the event and laid this whole thing out. And she says, she said, oh my God, I got to tell you, this has been so, such a great, um, thing for Content Marketing Institute and for the magazine for us to get really good content. So what she's found is that more and more people are have really good insight and really good expertise, but they're terrible writers. So instead right. of them forcing right. themselves to write something, she's been calling her, her and her team and the CMI team, we're calling these experts up, we're doing this, and then we're creating that article which is a lot of, by the way, a lot of native advertising programs do this as well. But then I said, well, would you please send that back to me? Because now I can create, I can create my presentation on right. my interview. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is just beautiful how this is working out. Anyways, yeah, I think so that basically, that's the kind of thing that editors are really, really amazing about. Yeah. Well, basically you, you, you're, you're agreeing with me that I'm a terrible writer. Um, and that I, <laughs> I didn't, like really come right out and say you were you have the, you know, this yeah. is the, the a lot of people don't know this about your writing i know when it's you because of the dot 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 <laughs> because you like when you're writing if you're writing me an email and you're serious about it there's no there's no end you never end it you just go dot 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 and you're on to the next <laughs> so you have you could have two three paragraphs worth of stuff with no period everything's just dot 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 and you go on to the next that's right. Which I that's, that's, I love. I think yeah. it's fantastic. But oh, it's tough you. for some some editors. I think it can be. Yes, there, <laughs> I think it can be. As someone, as an editor said to me one time, and I, I love this quote. I actually I want to use it as one of my testimonials. I use punctuation like Dr. Seuss uses words. So, so basically, <laughs> you know, there you have that's it. That's good. We'll put that on the back of the book. There you go. As a, there you I'm go. sure people would pick it up when they see that. <laughs> All right, let's move on to yeah. our next story here. This one comes courtesy uh, of digiday.com. Uh, the headline here, and this is making Joe's hearts, I can hear Joe's heart singing as we talk. Uh, the New York Times now has 13 million subscribers across 50 email newsletters. The article opens up by saying the New York Times email lists are swelling. The Times announced in an internal memo on Tuesday that it has amassed 13 million email subscriptions, more than twice the number it had three years ago. A lot of the growth comes from a huge uptick in the number of newsletters it publishes. In the summer of 2015, the Times was sending out 33 newsletters regularly. Today, it sends out more than 50 editorial emails at least weekly, along with seven marketing-focused newsletters which are sent less frequently. They range from local news, California Today, New York Times Australia, to service, cooking smarter, living, um, to history, Vietnam 67, a look back at the Vietnam War through the prism of a single year. Then the article goes on to explain how they have actually amassed this number of subscribers across 50 email newsletters. So, Mr. Polizzi, I, I suspect this was sort of a wonderful feather in your cap of email. What did you think about it? Well, I mean, this is not new. We've been seeing this trend for the last couple of years, and in my presentations, I always talk about BuzzFeed's transformation away right. from yeah. reliance on social media platforms uh, to reach their audience, which is not their audience. It's Facebook's audience and Twitter's audience um, to moving into I don't know how many BuzzFeed has now. They have at least a dozen. And over the last uh, 12 months have signed up more than a million email subscribers. And of course, this is really powerful with The New York Times doing this. I think what's interesting uh, is the behavior change that you're seeing. So in the article talks about this, that email subscribers are two times more likely to become paid subscribers. Yeah. And they exactly. also read double the amount of stories. So it's helping on two revenue lines. It's helping on the advertising revenue line and it's helping on their paid subscriber revenue line. And I think where everyone's talking about what's the next thing I was interviewed the other day, Robert, about what's the next thing from a, like a, a tools standpoint 
And I said, you know, like, you're not going to like my answer, but I, I think you just got to get serious about email and email newsletters because we've we've still got this over, even though this is not new and we've known about the, the shift in algorithms and how people are trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with Facebook and Google? And we talked about that in the last episode about them sort of taking over and what, what do we, what do we relegate it to? Well, if you have an amazing email newsletter, there's some power to that. You can communicate directly with your audience. And if you do it really well, you will see positive behavior changes toward the products and services that you offer. And it, it's it's almost too simple, Robert, that we just say, well, look, just do this. And so many emails are bad. Like I see right. so many really That's good, right. really good mousetraps. Like you go on a site, they have a piece of blog content, or they have something on social media you go to, and you go to and let's sign up for this, and you go and sign up for it, and you're expecting something great, and then it, 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 you get the email, and it's not good at all. It's not valuable. It's a rehashing of content that's on their site. And I think if I was going to spend some time as a marketer, I would say, well, what is our email marketing strategy, and how can we create a truly amazing experience through email? Uh, because there, it's such a low bar because your competition is probably terrible at it. So that's right. And but but the but what it the interesting thing is is that the decrease of the bar of your competition increases the bar of your subscriber. Right. In other words, you have to be that much better. Um, you know, in creating space between you and the next guy, you know, that you're competing against because the subscriber has become, quite frankly, so you know, sort of just scarred um, in terms of, you know, and calloused in terms of how they'll sign up and when they'll sign up so that, you know, skeptical it's, yeah, it's almost now, I mean, I'm working with a financial services company right now that is going, you know, that is doing everything right when it comes to their email marketing program, focusing on it, using advertising, using promotion, using, you know, everything is built around building their audience from a subscriber standpoint uh, perspective. You know, and they're looking at the cost of acquisition there, and they've watched the cost of acquisition go up. But quite frankly, it's going up a lot slower because of the you know the, the great content that they're creating, and they can start to see the effect of what you know for because they can compare it to other divisions that are just now starting up. You know, that are basically targeting the same audience, and they're just getting started with creating that value, and they can see the cost per acquisition for those people versus their cost per acquisition because they have a little bit of a content brand and they can actually generate some of that stuff and the content is so good. It's such an interesting gap between those two things to see because that's value, right? That's mm-hmm. real value there, but the, but it's expensive, right? It's an expensive cost per acquisition these days to get good, engaged email subscribers because it's just hard. It's just a hard thing to do. And it, but, but, but to your point, if you can do it, it's, and to the New York Times, you know, it can be extraordinarily valuable to your business. Well, that's where, that's where you have to figure out what the behavior change is. That's why you have, that's that's where you have to have a long term approach and you have to actually measure that. So let's say that it's costing you three to six dollars per email subscriber or whatever it's costing you. Well, then you have, or 10 times that, or 10 times that doesn't matter, right? It, yeah. yeah, it could be a hundred dollars mm-hmm. per, but if they're if they end up uh, five times more likely to spend, you know, ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars with you, well, that, that's fantastic. That's great. That's right. So that's, those are the things we need to measure. The last thing that I would say, which comes at the end of this article, which I thought was um, intriguing, was the um, Elizabeth Goodridge, who has worked on this email program, says that there is a place for finite experiences for audiences and talks about it's um, an email newsletter is like a newspaper. There is an end. There's a beginning and an end. So an email newsletter, you get there as a beginning end and I can delete that email. And she's seeing that as an opportunity as well, where people like to get that content. Oh, I've good. I've read that. I'm done with that. I'm going to delete that out of my inbox. I just thought that that was interesting, but there's still a place for that. Yeah. The, um, uh, is it the skim I think is a, is a, is a really good one. It's, it's one I subscribe to. It's a it's a pretty good email that does kind of that kind of thing where you've read it you've you've basically got the the gist of what it is you're 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 reading. Well, and then, and a, then yeah, and our friend um, you know Scott Monty does the full Monty, yeah, right, which I love. Yeah. It just basically says here's what's happened this week, yep. and then you could say oh, okay, good, I'm caught up to date, and delete. 
Exactly. And of course, you can click through if you're looking for deeper context yep. and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. All right. Um, next uh, on our list and last for this show comes to us courtesy of adweek.com. Uh, the headline here and really just talking about all the things that we've just been talking about here is why you should double down on trust marketing in the fake news era. The article opens up by saying this is the age of distrust. Fake news infiltrates the media daily. It inundates social media feeds and tempts with the most appealing of clickbait headlines. For marketing's underbelly, it has been a gold mine, but it has come at the cost of trust and consumer confidence. Never before has the general public been so skeptical of absolutely everything, let alone marketing and advertising. Edelman's 2017 Trust Barometer reported the largest ever drop in trust across the institutions of government, business, media, and NGOs. Trust in media took a nosedive and fell to all-time lows in 17 countries. Business, from faith in the brand to trust in executive leadership didn't fare much better. The article goes on to talk about how developing trust might be the most uh, important thing that we do. What did you think about this, Joe? I think that we are going to continue to see, and we, we, we've already been hearing hints about it from some of the clients that we work with about this move toward focusing on our current customers and communicating with our current customers where we can create better and better experiences for them so that they become our marketing. And I would say, I would like to see more of that happen. And what if somebody comes to me and they say, should I invest more money in, you know, top of the funnel type of content or, um, you know, customer loyalty type of content? Obviously, there's a lot of questions that need to go into that. But if I had only one choice, all things being equal, I would always choose communicating with my current customers. Because you know that if you do that, you have you have well, I think the the article talks about uh, even a five percent increase in customer retention creates a twenty five to eighty five percent increase in the profitability of the company. Yeah, it's fantastic. So yeah. Spend more Statistic. money on that. So that's yeah. why I love it. I'm even going through uh, a couple weeks ago. I did a lot of the judging for content marketing awards, and I loved getting into these uh, magazines and newsletters that were 10, 12, 14 years old, and they were the ones that were able to show the amount of money coming from them. Right. The ones that were campaigns that were six months, nine months, a year old, they had a hard time giving you anything over, oh, here's our traffic and social shares and our sentiment, and which is fine, but... It, you can't even compare that to when you see somebody say, oh, well, this goes out to our customers, and we know that our customers do this, this, and this different, and it's led to $50 million in additional revenue. I'm like, hey, that's not bad. That's pretty good. So that's where I think that this whole fake news thing is going, where if you're worried about this, the opportunity exists in focusing on our current customers. Yeah. So I I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I would just shift it into one maybe higher gear here, okay. which is um, when I read this article, I was like, yep, 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 yep. You know, we love, there's, you know, I mean, we, you and I have talked about in workshops and on this show many times the idea how much we love when brands start with a content marketing initiative at the retention and, and you know, and, and loyalty and advocacy stage. It's great. Um, and if you haven't read Jay Bear's Hug Your Haters yet, go read it. It's a great book. It's this is it. This is this is what it's talking about. This article is talking about, and what he's talking about in a nutshell is the idea of really turning your you know turning your biggest critics into your biggest fans. Um, and this article really speaks to that, right? So the two things that it really focuses on are are reviews, right? Getting getting more people and and working your review site, shifting money over into the reviews category, and then two, really looking at your um, your your existing customers and making sure that you're responding to them. I would offer a a top of the funnel or opportunity here, which is because of the sort of you know call it the democratization of mistrust it's a good good title for a nice. for a blog yeah. post maybe um is everybody sucks at it and so there's an opportunity there to get good at it um and start to differentiate which i think means we can actually start to look at stepping up and creating top of the funnel experiences that give our brand permission and to build that capital, you know, that political capital that you often talk about when you talk about creating a value for an audience consistently over time and building up that capital of trust based on the fact that you do it, right? And so 
if there is a topic in your industry that is that is filled with mistrust or that is that you can create a differentiator on trust, I think now is the time because quite frankly, the weakness in the media is there, the weakness in business is there, the weakness in um, user generated content in social media, in the institutions, it's all there for the taking if you want to step up and sort of take it over. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's going to be any easier, and it certainly doesn't mean that you can win trust immediately. But so many times, I'll be talking to a big brand, and one of the challenges that they have of going out, even just with traditional marketing, their traditional brand or their traditional product marketing, is quite frankly, they don't have permission to be an authority on this particular topic. They just have never done it before, so therefore, it's their, the, the question rightfully comes up, well, who are we to talk about this? And of course, the answer to that is no one until you do, yeah. right? You know, and so you have to actually start doing it somewhere, and doing it small, working. You know, basically, do you know? You use the BP example a, a lot, where you talk about what if they had, right? What if they had been building up this level of trust for a long period of time before disaster struck? Well, even if just, and we used to make this case all the time in the workshops, like even if it's simply just to start building some level of trust, there's business case alone to build a content platform that delivers on that for audiences. Even if it's simply just to be a place where you can, you know, let people uh, relieve some of that, you know, pressure uh, on the on the brand and gain some permission mm -hmm. to talk about a particular thing, whether it's Starbucks talking about journalism or whether it's Coca-Cola or whether it's your brand talking about expertise in a particular new marketplace or whatever it is. Now is the time. Now is the opportunity. You know, just a very simple example of that. Our friend Andy Crestedina, this is years ago, where he was trying to find out if there was any statistics related to how long a blog post should be. Exactly. And he, he typed it in, he asked around, he couldn't, nobody had data on it. A lot of people had their opinions on it, but nobody had data. So he, uh, he did a whole research project on how long a blog post should be. And he, he went out to like a thousand plus influencers and got all this bloggers and got all this data and created a research project, which has since become the most popular research project around that topic. So anytime when any media outlet uh, puts in you know, like how long a blog post should be, they always cite Andy Crestedina and Orbit Media Solutions work on that. That's right. Um, That's right. And it didn't. I mean, he'll. I mean, he put a lot of time and effort into it, but it wasn't rocket science. He just said, oh, okay, right. well, let's put That's the research exactly together. Right. Here it is. Let's build the database. They go ahead and do it. They put the report, report together. They do it every year now, and everybody looks at that, and they, they wait for that, kind of like the same thing we do with our content marketing research. So I, I just I just wish more companies would see that opportunity that you talk about because it's not – it's right in front of them. They just need to yep. grab it. It's so. well. It's 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 you know. It's it's seeing this level of distrust right now um, that really you know that really just illustrates it. That really just illustrates. Maybe I'll write that blog post. I should write that blog post. The democratization of distrust. That's a good title. That's a great that title. title. Maybe that's your next book. <laughs> no, I don't want to write a book for a while. <laughs> I mean, no. Good lord, <laughs> lordy. I hope yeah, there are yeah, tapes. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, we should talk about a wonderful sponsor that's been with us for so long. I love these guys. I wish there was yes. a webinar on our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> if, if only. <laughs> yes, thanks to our wonderful friends at GoToWebinar and, uh, and for sponsoring this episode. And as content marketers, we're a bit like triathletes. Thankfully, webinars help us as we compete for Mindshare across content formats. The research is clear. An effective webinar engages customers builds thought leadership, and sells products. They go to webinar has created this amazing ebook, and they show you how to attract and engage your audience, create your webinar content, and interact authentically with customers. And you can get this ebook called Why Webinars Help Marketers Win. Start rocking your lead gen with webinars at cmi.media slash pnr188a. That's cmi.media slash pnr188a. And the ebook is Why Webinars Help Marketers Win. Uh, go to webinar every time creates amazing, um, really helpful educational assets around uh, webinars. And they've really become a thought leader in it because of it. And of course, we know that they're trying to sell their webinar uh, platform, but they do it through this kind of educational content. And you know what happens is when you do this, they actually sell more webinars. Go figure. 
it yeah. actually I guess works. you create that, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, trust. Yeah, there we go. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. They become a trusted uh, trusted leader in, in webinar education. So right, Go figure. Go there you figure. go. So thanks to GoToWebinar for Absolutely. helping us out this week. Absolutely for that. All right, now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that's... Oh, you know, got us saying yes, or something that makes us say no, and make make what makes us the knowiest person in the uh, in the organization. Um, and uh, once again, shock of all shocks, I'm going first because I have this old marketing. All right, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I'm it's really right. not. You do such a good job. I know. You yeah. just do it. You just do that better than I do. And so I, I well, yeah, I have right. to default to to you. <laughs> so thank you. It's like. Everyone thanks you. You're welcome. Yeah. All right. Um, I have uh, uh, um, some more commentary here. Um, and uh, uh, this is uh, uh, I, I, you may be tired of hearing about my rants and raves about net neutrality, but I'm going to do one more um, because I think it's that important. And so, but first of all, big hat tip here to Jim Connolly, um, who sent this article over to me uh, personally, actually knowing my my passion for the for the topic, and and uh, it's uh, it's an important one. So the headline of the, the link that we'll put in the show notes here is to CNET. By the way. CNET, if anybody from CNET is listening, stop with the lot, the loud video that automatically comes on when I hit this. That was one. Oh, God, I hate that so much. Um, Are you using Chrome? Anyway. I am using Chrome. Chrome will block that, you know. I we know. We talked about that are, last episode. I, I know it will. I know it's just really <laughs> annoying. Um, anyway, so it's uh, the headline here is tech companies call for a day of action on net neutrality. Um, and the article here talks about tech companies, including Amazon, Etsy, Vimeo, Reddit. They're all coming together for a day of action on July 12th. That's coming up here, folks, to protest the potential rollback of the net neutrality rules that are being proposed by the FCC under the Trump administration. Um, this is an internet-wide day of action. Um, and if you want to actually uh, join up um, with that, they actually link to um, they, the site, which goes to battleforthenet.com. Um, I won't link that. We'll just link the article. But you can find the link in the article if you're interested in going over there because it has a registration, and I don't want to presume that you want to register. But it does have a registration that says, basically, we're going to send you all the stuff that we're going to be doing. If you go register, they'll send you a list of things that are going to be happening on July 12th and how you can participate. Um, and if you have a large uh, audience, if you yourself have a large social media following or you have a podcast or you have something where you have a relatively sizable audience, they also ask for that information um, and uh, and may help you and or encourage you to participate with your audience. So there's just a huge number of participants, including including Amazon and Vimeo and GitHub and BitTorrent and um, the Creative Commons uh, group, Mozilla, Reddit, um, you know, Imgur, um, you know, The Nation, O'Reilly, I mean, just Patreon, all of these amazing internet companies that are participating in this. And I think it's just really important. And I, and, and, um, and we're, we're participating in spirit, um, for this old marketing and I will be actively participating as Robert Rose. So, um, if you're interested in getting involved, get involved. You are passionate about this. You're you're as passionate as my son. He is. It's yeah. It's it's I a big. Deal. He's lost sleep about this. He's so concerned that yeah, it's a yeah. It's an it's 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 annoying as f as they as the kids might say. Well, I think that uh, we're all on the same page. This is not a political issue. No, this which is, is why I'm only linking to the article, not yeah. linking to the thing. You know, and you know this the show is not participating in any official way, but I will be so. You know, and I'm using my my little soapbox as a means of doing that. Okay, anytime. Hey, you, you're not going to hear any complaints from this side of the house, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so my um, this is a I guess this would be a rave, and uh, when I'm completely out of ideas on uh, what my rants or rave should be, I always sit down with my kids and I say, well, what is going on in your world of content consumption that that I should be bringing up on the podcast. And right away, my youngest son, Adam, talked about um, this, what what he calls adpocalypse, but it's sort of a, a resuming, if you will, of what we covered on the podcast a couple months ago, where YouTube added their ad-friendly uh, yep, constraints right. or whatever, yep. where some of the shows 
uh, would not be allowed to monetize through advertising because they were talking about, uh, I don't want to say terrorist related or whatever, uh, highly political, highly charged um types of content that they felt uh, were not appropriate for certain mainstream advertisers. And so that happened. And there was some uh, people in the community, in the YouTube community, that got really upset by this. And what was interesting as well, some in the YouTube community that actually adjusted their content so they could keep advertising. I thought that was really interesting. So I'm going to actually link to a couple of uh, short YouTube um, videos here. One is from, uh, these are two of Adam's favorites, by the way. So, uh, so I apologize as a parent that I let him watch these things, but they're really, <laughs> they're really informative. So one is, uh, Philip DeFranco and I'll talk about Philip DeFranco in a second. He has 5.4 million followers and Phil, Phil DeFranco basically covers the news uh, of the week in a very entertaining way. And then the second one, which I think is the really informative one, is from Boogie2988, who has 4 million followers. And he talks about the whole thing that's going on and uses Philip DeFranco as an example. So basically what happened is is that YouTube uh, would not allow advertising on Philip DeFranco's site because he didn't meet these ad-friendly guidelines. Well, uh, Philip DeFranco just covers the news. He's just covering this, so he, he covers what happens, and, and for some reason, uh, what he was saying uh, ended up being uh, thought of as not ad-friendly, so he was losing revenue through that, and so Boogie2988 talks about how this whole thing happened and why he thinks that the reason for that, but what I thought was really interesting, and here's where the content marketing come in, comes in. So Philip DeFranco, he builds his audience of 5.4 million on YouTube. I think he does... Uh, it's it's a almost a daily uh, news report that he does. It's really well produced. So what he decided to do because YouTube took away his revenue options. By the way, um, he does have sponsors, so he's already sponsoring, get um, monetizing it in episode. But he had an additional revenue stream of YouTube supporting through advertising. Well, that seems to be going away. So what he decided to do was start his own news network, and he did so. You just mentioned this, Robert. He did so on Patreon. So he started his own news network on Patreon. So he has 16,218 patrons as of June 9th that he was able that wanted to pay him directly to find out more about what's going on with uh, with Philip DeFranco. So I thought that that was interesting. And we've talked about it a lot on this podcast where, you know, it's great if you're going to build your platform on YouTube, but you got to remember you're under YouTube's law and they can do whatever they want to. They, you could d- decide to take away your access, change the algorithm, not show your video as much as subscribers, yep. all those types of things. So if you do that, which is fine because your audience might be on YouTube, you should start thinking immediately about how to, how to diversify off that platform. And Philip DeFranco was sort of forced to do that. And he is since at least the first idea is to build his own news network and he's done throw on so gun done so on monetized effectively on Patreon. So it's just interesting to see that this is affecting a lot of people, whether you're highly charged content or not, and it's just something to be aware of. And what I like about it is that you immediately have to think about, even if you're a content marketer, how you're going to monetize your platform. Uh, and not just do it maybe the way that you always think about it. And we talk about that a lot in the new book coming out, Killing Marketing, as well. So thanks to Adam, my son, for wow, for sending story. me this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll post the two the videos. But if you only have time for one video, I would uh, watch the first, let's say, eight minutes of the Boogie 2988 video because it's a really good overview of what's going on and how there's a lot of uh, YouTubers that are concerned. And what I thought was really interesting, Robert, is that you have YouTubers that that have sort of censored their own content so they could keep advertising, which sort of hurts a little bit that you're seeing yeah, that happen. Exactly. So, well, I mean, welcome to broadcast media. Yeah, you know what I, I mean. I guess that's, so. You're right. That's what's happening. It's exactly what it is. You know, I mean, the, you know, it used to be in the day that you'd have network censors who would sit on stage and censor the actors or the writers in the middle of doing sitcoms and and uh, television shows, and then it would have to go for a review to the network, and then the network would come back and call for a re-edit, and now you just have you just have it in real time is all. That's right, yeah. Un- unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, um, let's do you see. Have, we do you have, have this old marketing? I do, do have a, this old marketing, <laughs> and it's a cool one, <laughs> you know, this week. Shocking, I know, that I have yes. it. Um, it has a, it's, it's a really interesting one. Um, so 
Do you remember, I don't know how many shows it was ago, do you remember when you sort of took Mobile Oil to task for their mission statement? Oh, Exxon, yeah. Uh, Exxon, yeah, well, yeah, Exxon Mobile, Mobile, right, okay. Yeah, I talked right. about yeah. it in an article on CMI, and we talked about it on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, so it, there is a wonderful this old marketing from Mobile Oil, um, and uh, now part of, of course, Exxon Mobil. And I found that I don't know how I found this. It it's a really cool example, and it's one of those things where if there's anybody from Exxon Mobil listening, you gotta first of all pay attention. You may know about this, but 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 pay attention because this would be a really cool idea to resurrect. So there was a magazine. Um, in the 60s, and it ran from 1970 to 1985. So it ran for 15 years, this magazine. It was called Pegasus Magazine. And you can see the corporate tie-in with mobile because, of course, they had the, the, the horse with wings and Pegasus and all of that. And so... They during the late sixties and into the seventies, you know, of course you know the the what was going on in the US at that point, you know, lots of things about the Vietnam War and there was the hippie generation and there was a lot of bold ideas, rebellious ideas going along. And they decided that they were gonna do a magazine to sort of capture some of that feeling. And so they launched this magazine called Pegasus Magazine. Um and it became sort of an art and literature and editorial sort of juggernaut of the time that basically brought in all of this sort of rebellious art and thinking. They had interviews with Marshall McLuhan. Um, they had interviews with actors. Um, they had these artists and photographers that would do these really interesting pho uh, photographic exhibits within the book. So it was like a photo book in, in many ways, the magazine. Um, each issue had a theme. So like one would be called the youth issue and one would be called the change issue. And apparently as they go through in this story that we'll link to in the show notes, they would have huge fights with many of the top brass at mobile over getting the editorial approved because some of it was quite controversial. Some of the photography was quite controversial and they would have these big battles and ultimately the editorial group won. The whole point of the magazine was to really get it in a very exclusive way to some of their high-powered clients, right? So CEOs, CM, well, but CMO really wasn't invented then, but CFOs, big C-level and board members of some of their big um, customers and really become an exclusive magazine. So it wasn't something you would find in the airport or, or you know, in a magazine stand. This was something that was delivered to you if you were an exclusive member of, of part of their, you know, quote unquote, big high profile um, clientele. And they were trying to create this positive thing to say mobile is really a forward thinking, cutting edge thinking artistic organization and really build relationships with these very high powered uh, people with this with this um, with this content. And so they hired this uh, professional editor um, uh, uh, whose name was Vitellio, last name of Vitellio, and I'm looking for his first name right there, and I can't find it. Um, and he was at the helm from the mid-70s for the 10 years from 75 to 85. And during that time, they just brought in all sorts of uh, guest writers like Studs Terkel, Marcel Marceau, the famous French uh, pantomime artist, um, as I mentioned, Marshall McLuhan, and then all these photographers to create this content. The magazine itself, lasted until 1985 and I love the end of this here because this brings us right back to where you sort of <laughs> you sort of figured with your you know sort of chiding of them with the with the thing the reason they sort of said the magazine finished was corporate culture uh, from mobile began to shift in the 1980s uh, and Vitellio, the editor there, wasn't surprised that Mobile shut down the magazine in 1986. As he said, the bold ideas of the 1960s and 1970s were supplanted by more business-oriented projects. The change was reflected in the people that Mobile hired. You didn't see long-haired intellectuals anymore. The most we might have hoped for was another five years of this magazine. Mm. And then, as he says, but for those who are lucky to have had access to copies, Pegasus remains a tribute to what can be achieved in both form and content and cutting-edge art within the constraints of corporate publishing. I just thought it was a really cool example oh, of this old marketing. That's a wonderful example. And just to yeah. follow up on... 
basically what I talked about, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, and it's nothing against the the marketers. We know a lot of the marketing people at ExxonMobil. Yeah, exactly. It's what we talked about was the constraint of the mission of ExxonMobil, which the mission of ExxonMobil is very, very, to your point, very business-oriented. And what we talked about was it's very hard for a communication specialist to get in with that mission and create really quality information that's going to help somebody's job or help somebody's life long term. So it's not, and it's fine. I mean, they've done really well. I mean, they're the, I think right now the fourth biggest company in the world by market cap or something like that. That's right. But it's very hard to grow and be innovative with a mission statement that's just focused around your products and services. And that's what it is right there. But I love this idea that you could, you know, if you made the decision, that'd be a really tough sell, I'm assuming inside that culture, but what an opportunity that would be to just to do out. something really yeah. interesting, right? I mean, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot, um, you know, sometimes, you know, quite frankly, you've got companies that are so big, and ExxonMobil certainly, you know, qualifies for this, but you've got companies that are so big that any one thing you're going to do, just quite frankly, isn't going to move the needle that much. I mean, you know, it just isn't, right? I mean, you know, it, it's it's the it's the aggregation of everything that's really sort of creates things. And so, it's like, how do you make a business decision for something small ish in that in that atmosphere, right? Because it's very thin atmosphere, right? You you know, there's not a lot you can do to 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 really like shake things up a lot. And so the business case doesn't become like, you know, how are we going to sell more fuel by doing a content marketing project, right? Because that's just a silly question, right? They're, of course, they've, they've got momentum, they've got channels, they've got distributors, they've got so many things going on that you say to yourself, why would we do anything, quite frankly, much less create something like this? And to me, what this represents, what the Pegasus magazine represents is, why not do something really interesting, right? Almost because whatever you do is not going to have that big of an effect, why not do something really interesting, innovative, and cool? This, to me, is where a big company, a big brand that has such huge momentum can really experiment and do interesting, innovative things in this disruptive time to really do something just for no other reason than because we can and because it would be interesting and and to have everything have to comply with some algorithmic equation of business value just seems to me to be such a short-sighted sense of what we can do as humans in a business that's the and and so it's almost you want to say it, there is no business case to make. Just do it because it's interesting. Well, Just uh, spend a little money because it's interesting. You no, know, you can make a, a business case for it regardless. I agree with you by the way, but uh, look at Airbnb, right? Airbnb launches a print magazine. Like if you, like really, honestly, who cares? Right. But it got a ton of coverage. Now, why does it get coverage? Because it's a print magazine. Not a lot of people well, are launching print magazines. It's a great point. Now, if you said Airbnb launches a blog, that wouldn't get covered at all, right? Because they just did something different. If you had ExxonMobil come out and say, first of all, it's ExxonMobil. Second of all, they're launching a print magazine. Like we in one of the episodes, we we didn't get to it, uh, but we were, Kodak launched a new magazine, right? Why is that a That's Why right. is that even a thing? Because it's a is it's a print magazine from Kodak, you know. Yeah. Nobody's doing that kind of stuff, so that's why it's news. So I think there might be a case that you could say you could shake things up a little bit. So, anyways, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Do it, just do it, just do it, <laughs> do it, <laughs> just just do it. Hey, some, that's a good tagline. Some company ought to pick that up. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's, nobody's ever going to use that tagline. Nah, nah never, never mind, never. Um, Maybe you know, that'll before, be my blog post before we. We, we wrap up the show um, because the next show that we do, I'll be coming back from That's vacation. Right. And we're going to do a little, you know, we had special we had, episode. Well, we had so many great comments on our special episode last time that we did like on, on uh, we talked about how the podcast started and our origination, origination story and all that stuff. And we're going to do a, a how we work, how Joe and Robert works. But we wanted to take some Q&A from the audience. So uh, if you would like to know any questions specifically uh, about what we do as Joe and Robert, if you're at all interested, <laughs> you can, yeah, right. you you may can not send be. them out on the hashtag on Twitter, <laughs> this old marketing, yeah. 
or send them into the email address, which Robert yeah. will read in a little bit. But I want anything to make sure how we got how we out. produce yeah. how we produce the podcast, how we create stuff, how we blog every week, how we work in consulting with clients, how we um, go to do speeches, how we create speeches, how how Joe created the company and really founded something that's quite special, and you know just really anything about how our day-to-day working habits and what we do for a living, if there's anything that we can help with or that you're just curious about, we'd love to hear it on the hashtag for sure. So, yeah. So there you go. And then we'll have that. It'll be a very special episode. That's right. Episode 189 will be a very special episode that sort of highlights that stuff. That's exactly right. It'll be a special birthday episode for me. That's right. Special birthday episode. Oh, that's... That's... What is that going to be? Forty nine. Right. <laughs> You're very kind. Uh, You're very very kind, sir. Yeah, it will not unfortunately be. Yes, it's all uh, about what's inside. That's all that matters. Everyone, oh dear. everyone knows this. You're so <laughs> special. <laughs> all right, that's enough of that. Yeah. Quite frankly, um, we are signing up for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose, and thank you once again to go to webinar and video blocks for sponsoring our little hour of nonsense here. Um, and if you like this episode, number 188, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? The kind reviews. We really, really would need and love some more reviews on iTunes because it helps us rank and that helps us get sponsors and that helps us stay encouraged to do this little hour of nonsense. And if you haven't yet, consider subscribing. iTunes, Stitcher.com. And when you leave us a review or if you subscribe, let us know. We want to hashtag you up on this old marketing. Um, we'd love to thank you personally for each and all of that of course story ideas questions for the next episode all of that hashtag us up at this old marketing on the twitter or of course you can send any of that if you're not on the twitter you don't like the twitter you don't need the twitter send us an email we like the email this old marketing at contentinstitute.com all the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes as we go to publish on monday night and of course in all of their replete technicolor glory on the show post at this on saturdays until next week everybody in our very special episode talking about the way we work remember everybody it is your story to tell tell it well see you next week on this old marketing Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.